tonight, uh, my good friend uh, from, well, I met him first thing in the school of ministry, and uh, he, uh, he's going to be sharing his testimony. He's also our youth pastor. Most of you guys know him. Uh, so I want to welcome up Jerry Dayton, who is, by the way, just back from Israel. He was in Israel for two weeks. So he said all of his calluses came off his hand in the Dead Sea. Yeah. So anyway, I'll give it over to you. Yeah, that was funny. I, Ellie and I swam in the Dead Sea, and it's supposed to have magical healing powers and stuff like that. But what I noticed is that my calluses were gone, and it hurt to play the guitar the next day. So it's not helpful, but... Uh, so my testimony, I know a lot of you guys have heard kind of the testimony of losing my wife and that stuff, so I think I'm going to kind of go along a different route this tonight and uh, maybe talk more about how relationships have gone in my life, because, um, you know, college age, a lot of you, and that kind of is something that's pertinent. So um, to begin with, I got saved when I was about 12. I don't really know when I came to the saving knowledge of Christ, it's just we started going to church and I just went, yeah, I believe all this stuff. But I don't know, you know, when that, when there was a transition of salvation in there. But I know that when I was about 14, um, I knelt in my bedroom and I said, Lord, I want to make you the Lord of my life. I want you to be in charge of my life. And wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, whatever price you want me to pay, I'm willing to do it. And uh, I didn't realize kind of what the ramifications of that prayer were going to be in my life. Um, and I, I've had uh, to pay some hefty costs to be his servant, but... Um, it's been worth every penny and uh, every heartache and all those things. But as I've been seeking the Lord and trying to uh, draw near to Him, uh, relationships have been a part of it. And I, um, so one of the things that happened was my first Christian relationship, if you want to call it that, was when I was about 20 years old. And I was dating this girl, and we were dating for you know several months. And then I felt like, okay, we're, we're moving towards that time of getting ready to get married. So I was already starting in my head plan about you know, how I was going to propose to her and that sort of thing. And then one day she just came to my house and said, I don't think we're supposed to be together anymore. And she just dropped me and that was it. She just disappeared out of my life. And it was really hard. I really struggled with it. And it was a really hard time. And about six months after that, I was sitting in church uh, on a Sunday night like this. And um, the pastor was challenging the congregation, what is God asking you to lay aside in your life right now? What is he asking you to put at the foot of the cross? And I was like, girls and relationships, forget all that, you know, and so, um, so that was kind of the thing, and I, I felt like he was laying on my heart that he wanted me to spend a season in singleness uh, during that time, so I was about 21 when this happened, and I felt like he was laying on my heart to stay single until I was 24, and I was like, I'll give you till I'm 23. <laughs> Compromising with God doesn't really work, by the way, so what happened was um, I spent about a year and a half uh, just being single, being focused on serving the Lord. I had the opportunity to run a college ministry during that time, and I was just neck deep in part-time school, full-time or part-time work, full-time school, full-time ministry, and just um, just going crazy all out. And I didn't have time for anything, especially a girlfriend. So it worked out good that I was supposed to be single during that season. And then when 23 rolled around, um, I was like, okay, God, at 23 we'll reevaluate. So 23 comes around, no prospective girls in, in sight. I'm busy doing ministry. So I said, all right, God, I'll give you till I'm 24. So I, uh, I spent another year just being focused on being single. And I'm not saying that this is a formula for how it works to be in a relationship, but God was, I, I felt like I was faithful to what the Lord called me to, and then he was faithful to me. So it was really interesting because um, three weeks before my 24th birthday, I met my, my first wife. And so it was, I mean, I'd known her, but like it was the first time we kind of like interacted and... Um, so what happened was, it was Christmas Eve, and she came into the church, and it was the first time, like, that I realized, you know, hey, there's this girl, let's hang out, you know. And then after the, church, the service was over, it was me and maybe three or four other people that were cleaning up the whole mess that we'd made making the service, and she was one of the people hanging out. And so she had a servant's heart, and um, that really appealed to me. So uh, her name was Lene, and my best friend, when my... When my birthday was coming up, which my birthday is the 12th of January, so about three weeks after New Year's Eve, or Christmas Eve, um, my best friend's like, hey, I want to take you out to dinner for your birthday. And I said, yeah, and we should invite Amy, which was a mutual friend of him and I, and her new roommate, which was Lene. So I was conniving a little bit. But, um, and he's like, yeah, okay, we can do that. So we ended up you know, inviting the two girls out, and then we, him and I planned it so that I could end up sitting across the table from her. And we spent the whole night chatting with each other and just really hit it off. 
And that was three days after my 24th birthday. And then the day, you know, at the end of the night, I was like, so what are you doing tomorrow? And she wouldn't let me off the hook at all. She's like, oh, I got to come out and, you know, get a laptop and get ready for school and stuff. And I was like, okay, so what are you doing for lunch? She's like, I don't know. I'm like, come on, just say you want to go to lunch, you know. And I'm like, well, you want to go to lunch? And then there's that long pause. Come on, come on. You know, and she said, yeah, that sounds good. So we went to lunch, and we went to In-N-Out and Starbucks. So, I mean, already she's the perfect date. So, um, so that, that's what we consider to be our first date. And we dated for uh, seven months, and then we were engaged for seven months. And then we got married and had a fairy tale wedding with swords and the whole trip. It was really cool. And uh, then we were married for nine months, and she passed away and in a car accident. We were both in a car accident. She died instantly in the accident. We slid on ice in, in a truck and hit a tree right on her door. It was just her time, you know, and everybody, God knows the minute of everybody's time, you know, whatever, however long you have, he knows what it is, and we need to use it well, and um, anyway, so I was, I survived the accident, but I broke my arm, got 23 staples in my head, um, apparently I don't have any more brain damage than I had before the accident, so that's good, and uh, anyways, God uh, brought me through that season, and that's a whole other part of my testimony that I've shared before, so we'll We'll kind of move on from there. But one of the things that was challenging to me about that time with her was she was such a rad example to me. When I met her initially when she was younger, she was in a wheelchair. Actually, she was in, on crutches. But she had had an allergic reaction to a hepatitis shot when she was 14. And she was really into sports. She was nationally ranked in junior high as a cross-country runner. And then she was made varsity her freshman, maybe her sophomore year of high school. And then, she, um, and then she ended up getting this re allergic reaction. She ended up paralyzed from the waist down. Uh, initially, that was what happened. And then about a month later, she went into the hospital, went back into the hospital, and the paralysis was working its way up her body and had shut down her lungs. She was on a breathing machine and had surrounded her heart. And she was, the doctor said, she's not going to make it through the night. And everyone prayed you know, that they could have a little bit more time with her. And then... Um, she ended up making a recovery, and she, uh, she could, it took her a year to get to the point where she could walk again, and so she shared all this with me uh, in her testimony. We shared our testimonies with each other on our first date. That's kind of what we did, and so it was cool, and she's sharing all that with me, and then she said that the reason God allowed that to happen was because she had made an idol out of sports, that that was the thing, and it was distracting her from her relationship with God, so God had to move that out of the way so that she could be focused. And I, was, I just thought she was such an amazing girl to be able to have that perspective of, like, God's got to be the number one thing, and nothing else can get in the way of that. And so, um, so that was really cool. And she started walking the same week that I met her. And, uh, and then at the time, I was running college ministry, and she was just a kid in the youth group. But then all of a sudden, she grew up, and we were both in college together. And um, so then we, we started our relationship. But... Uh, anyway, so she passed away, and I, I went through that season, and God healed me and strengthened me and carried me for, you know, probably two years of just really awkward interactions with people and that sort of thing. And the thing about it is that God is so faithful. And, you know, if you're going through a hard time, the place that I lived for two years was in Romans chapter 8. Hang out in that chapter. There's just so many amazing promises in there. And... Um, one of them being Romans 8.18, which says, For I'm convinced that, the, that this present suffering is not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed within us. And so I just held on to that. God, okay, I understand the suffering part, but I want to see the glory part. You know, so um, anyways, about two years after the accident, I was hanging out with my friend. And we were at the movies, and we were talking. And he, we were talking about how all of our lives had kind of gone sideways, you know, um, one of my friends had been married and divorced in the last two years. Another one of my friends, his um, wife had a miscarriage at seven months. My wife had passed away. We were just going through a string of hard things in my friend group. And my, my friend Dan said to me, he's like, don't you wish we could just go back to two years ago when everything was going good and people were getting married and, and it was all beautiful? And, and I looked at him and I said, you know, I, of course I want my wife back. But I, if I have to go back to who I was and not be the person God's made me out of this suffering and out of the two years that I've had to struggle, I don't think I could do that. If this is the only way that God could shape me, then that's what needed to happen. 
and I can't go back to that person. And so I, I guess my encouragement to you guys is don't be afraid of hard things when they come because God wants to shape you and grow you into something even more beautiful and more powerful so that he can bring more glory to himself through your life. It's an exciting thing. And um, so the other thing that was interesting about my wife, my first wife, was that my best friend Byron and I at the time, we were hanging out right shortly after she passed away, like a week or two weeks later, and he asked the question, what do you think she would have done differently if she'd known she was going to die? Because obviously she didn't know we were going to get into a car accident. And, uh, and we decided together that she probably would have taken her finals early. Because we were in college and we were, we were the car accident was on um, Friday just before going into finals week, the next week of school. And so we decided she probably would have taken her finals early. And the thing that was challenging and encouraging to me about that was that she was in the middle of doing full speed what God had called her to do in her life. She wasn't wasting her time. She wasn't just floating around doing whatever. She knew what God wanted her to do, and she was pursuing it 100%. And she was just driven. And I felt like I wasn't really doing that. Am I becoming the person God wants me to be to the best of my ability? And so I, that's, I guess, another challenge you know, that I'd like to lay to you guys and to myself because you know, we can easily get complacent and slack off and not move into what God's called us to. But each one of us knows. As a matter of fact, they just asked that question yesterday at the men's breakfast. You know, what has God laid on your heart to do that you haven't done yet? It's challenging because we all know that God's called us to more than doing nothing. He's called us to something that we need to, to get busy doing. And so um, <clears throat> anyway, so that was that relationship. And then five years went by after the car accident. I got ready to go to England. And I was like, okay, Lord, I'm 30. You know, and now I'm getting ready to go to England. And I thought I was going to you know, be married and be starting to have kids by now. And I'm starting to learn that my schedule is never your schedule, that you've got a totally different plan for me than any other plan I've ever seen. So that's okay. And uh, if you want me to go to England and be single for two years and just be dedicated to ministry, I'm willing to do that. So I went to England thinking that it was going to be another season of singleness for me. Uh, little did I know that a month after I got there, I was going to meet Ellie. And uh, so really neat story. We, I went to England, and I was actually, let me go on a, a little tangent. How much time do I have left? Four minutes. Okay, that's good. A little tangent. Um, before I went to England, it took me two and a half years to get to England from when I felt like God laid the call on my life until I actually got there. It got to the point where, because uh, I had a seasonal job where I was working as a snowboard instructor, so I had a group of people I hung out with in the wintertime only, and I had a group of people that I hung out with at summer camp only. And so I'd like go to winter camp, and then I'd go to summer, and then I'd go back to winter snowboarding, and there'd be people who would be like, how was England? Like, oh, I haven't gone yet. You know, like, it took that long for me to finally get there. So be patient and be busy while God's got you waiting, you know. But um, anyway, so I went to England. Oh, and during that time, 17 months, 13 or 17 months, I'll have to look back at my journal. Um, before I left for England, I was in my devotion, and I just felt like the Lord laid it on my heart. You're not going to go to England until the church has a building. And I didn't know that was a big deal. There are churches, there are Calvaries in England right now that have been Calvaries for about 18 years, and they still don't have a church building. They have a facility that they rent on Sunday night, uh, Sundays for their services, maybe an office building that they use for business during the week, but they don't have a facility like this where they can do stuff during the week, have midweek services, maybe have a school or, or whatever. They don't have that kind of opportunity. And so I didn't realize that that was a big deal. And yet the church that I was going to to help serve in was Kings Lynn. And in Kings Lynn, they got the, the church building and I landed in England on Thursday before the first Sunday in the building. So God said, you're not going until there's a building. And I got there three days before they had their first service in the building. And God spoke that 17 months before I got there. So God really does speak to people. And you've got to write it down because if you don't write it down, you won't remember. I didn't even know that that had happened until I was reading back in my journal after I'd been in England for a couple of months. And went, wait, when was this? Oh my gosh, this is amazing. And so, um, anyways, got to England. I was there for a month, and then we went down to our sister church in Cambridge for an evening service, and I saw Ellie from across the room, and I just had to talk to her. And I'm not that guy. As outgoing as I am, I don't go up to random girls that I don't know in a foreign country and try and have a conversation. I can't do that, you know. But I just had to go talk to her. So I went and talked to her, and uh, we just chatted about life and school and whatever, and then 
I got on the train that night, and I was like, okay, God, that was really weird. We didn't exchange any information or anything. I just thought it was the strangest thing, and then I went back to England, or to Kings Lynn, and I was like, okay, I'm an hour away. I'm never going to see that girl again. I don't know. It was weird. And then two and a half months after that, the pastor in Kings Lynn and I were meeting for morning prayer, and he said, there's a girl coming from Cambridge to stay with us for a month because of her job. And my heart just started pounding on the inside, and I was like, I knew, I knew it was going to be Ellie. And I said, really, what's her name? And he said, Ellie. And I was like, wow, all right, that's interesting. So for three days before she got there, I prayed and fasted because there aren't accidents in God's kingdom. I knew that there was something going on. Why was that the one girl that I met when I was in Cambridge? And so Ellie came to Kings Lynn, and uh, she, uh, she was working at the council building, and she was staying with the pastor and his wife. And I knew that she had to take kind of a route through the park to get to her job and back from her job. So in the afternoon, when she was on her way home, I strategically placed myself in her path. But I didn't want to be obvious, so I was kind of like a little off to the side or whatever. And she walked right past me and just pretended like I wasn't there. And I was like, hey, hey, and I tried to catch up with her. And, and uh, I asked her later, I'm like, didn't you see me? She's like, yeah, but I didn't know what to do, so I just kept walking. <laughs> um, so anyways, I, I walked up and I asked her if I could carry her bags for her. And that's how I got to know her was I spent a month meeting her in the morning, carrying her bag to work, and then meeting her in the afternoon and carrying her bag back home and just chatting with her. And that's how we got to know each other, and then we ended up dating. And we dated for, mm, I think, three months. And then I asked her to marry me, and she said no. Or actually, she said wait, because she'd only known me for three months. So that's fair enough. And she's English, and I'm American, and I'm a cowboy, and she's very proper and you know, understated, and things have to go slowly. So, And it was actually really good, too, because her dad wasn't really that keen on me, really, uh, to begin with either because I was the loud American and I, it was stereotypes. It didn't have anything to do with me really particularly. And so I dated for her for another 11 months and then asked her to marry, no, 13 months because I asked her in October and then I asked her again the following November. And uh, I asked her to marry me in November and she said, I thought you were going to ask me last month. And I had asked her dad if I could marry her in October and he said, I thought you were going to ask me last month because I'd gone with them on a family vacation in September. I was like, okay, so I'm too early the first time, I'm too late the second time, I can never get things right. And so, um, anyway, so we dated, and then because they were going to throw me out of the country because my visa was running out, we were going to be engaged for like six or seven months, we ended up having to shorten that to four months, and we got married in England, and then two days later left England on our honeymoon, and because my visa was running out three days later, and uh, we, and then we came back, and they let me back in the country for a couple of weeks so that we could, you know, get things settled and get packed up, and then we came to the States. And um, we were coming back to the States, too, for me to go to the School of Ministry, and then that's how I met Dave, and that's how I ended up here. So God takes whatever route he wants to send you on. And uh, anyways, he, uh, we ended up coming here, and we landed in California on the, uh, the 10th of September. We moved to Mission Viejo. We were staying with a pastor and his wife when we first got here on the 12th, and then I started the School of Ministry on the 13th. And it's been pretty much full speed since then. But going back to the very beginning, like I said, when I was 14, I knelt in my room and I said, God, anywhere you want me to go, anything you want me to do, whatever price you want me to pay, I'm willing to pay it. Ellie and I just got back from Israel. It's pretty awesome. I've been to Malta. I've been to Italy. I've been to the Ukraine on a missions trip. I've been to Mexico. I've been to Canada. I mean, God's taken me almost all over this planet and just in the opportunities to serve him. And it was... It's another really cool thing, too, when the movie A Walk to Remember came out. A lot of girls know that movie. A lot of guys don't. But um, when that movie came out, she had a list of things. Before the bucket list came out and it was popularized, she had a list of things she wanted to get done in her life. And I made one of those lists when that movie came out. And then I looked back at it a couple years ago, and it was like 80% done. And I was like, oh, no. I need to write more things before I run out. Right? Because you run out, and then you kick the bucket. So, um, so I put more things on my list. But... The thing about it was, that was neat was that I didn't pursue those things. They were just desires in my heart that God walked me through as I was serving him and seeking after him. And so that goes back to Psalms where it says, um, actually, let's look it up. It's always good to look at the scriptures, right? And we'll just leave it with this verse. So Psalm 37.
Sometimes I think my phone is slower than having an actual Bible. All right. It says in verse 3, Psalm 37, 3, it says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And so, not only, I think God works on both sides of that equation. I think that when you seek the Lord, he puts into your heart desires that will please him. And then as you walk in him, he allows you to fulfill those desires that he's given you. And when you do that, you're just living in the joy of what it is to serve the master. And it's not a strain because you're doing what he made you love anyways. And so it's just neat because looking at that list of things that I had on, that I wanted to do, he walked me through those desires of my heart without me straining to do them in, in myself, just in walking with him and hanging out with him. And so, I don't know, hopefully you, you take something away from that and just get excited about being with the Lord and seeing what he's going to do with your life. So. Thank you very much, man. All right. Thank you. Well, tonight we're going to be talking about crisis, and uh, we're in Mark chapter 5, but uh, let, let me, let's go ahead and pray first before we get into the Word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this time, and God, we thank you for Jerry's story, Lord God, what you have allowed him to go through, and God, how you've shown yourself faithful through all of his hardships. Lord, we pray now that you'd open up your word to us, give us understanding uh, so that we can be faithful, and uh, we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. You know, uh, <clears throat> when uh, we first had our first child, it was an exciting, exhilarating moment, uh, but what I learned with that number one child that uh, came into our lives, Elise, um, she's now going to be 12 this next month, or actually this month, in, fi in five days. Um, and uh, when, when she was born, uh, you know, everything was awesome. Like, uh, everything is awesome. But, um, <laughs> but when she was born, uh, we were so excited and stuff. But shortly after, I'd say probably about eight months, um, we started to realize that uh, she was coughing a lot. And so we took her to the doctor, and they said, she's got asthma. I'm like, oh, man. Now, I grew up with asthma, and I, I don't really know. I didn't really realize what I put my parents through until I had my own. And um, we, we would have we would have this time blur. Like usually, she was doing really great. Um, she'd get a cold, and we we're like, okay, she's got a cold. And then by the third day, she was like, couldn't breathe, sort of thing. And I'd be rushing her to the hospital. I remember one time it was early in the morning, and I said, you know what? She's not responding to her breathing treatment. I got to get her to the the ER right away because we had breathing machines at home. So pack her up in the car driving to the ER, just hitting traffic, get on the 22 freeway because we lived in Garden Grove, and it's just traffic, and, and she's in the back, like, gasping for air. And so I just remember, like, pulling onto the shoulder and just driving as fast as I could down the shoulder. I know you're not supposed to do that, but I was like, my, I got to get my daughter to the ER. Got her to the ER, and she had, like, 80% um, O2 levels in her blood. And so it was just, it was one of those things that, in tonight's story, as we talk about these things, me as a father, I can totally identify with uh, one of the characters that we're going to meet tonight, Jairus. Um, and, and I think we can all identify with the idea of crisis and how crisis puts us in binds at times and how crisis challenges us in our faith and, um, and our, our very being, and it can rock us to our core. But uh, I'll tell you, uh, Claire was born... And Elise's asthma got better, and Claire's asthma got worse. And now, uh, actually, just tonight, I found out that Lucy has pneumonia. So we're like, oh, come on. But uh, God is good through it all. All right, um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5 and verse 21. Now, as we get ready to read this, remember, last week, we talked about Jesus on the other side of the garrison, uh, in the garrisons, with the, meeting that demoniac, uh, that man who was possessed by a legion of demons, and how he set that man free. Now he's going to cross over, and we're going to pick up at verse 21. Mark 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. 
And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Verse 30, And Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Let me pause there for a moment as we, as we get into our text here tonight. The, what, this story is crazy. We have two crises happen, happening. Uh, one's a very immediate crisis. We've got a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. Uh, you know, what's another day, right? Her crisis doesn't seem as bad as much of an emergency. And then we've got this daughter of the synagogue ruler who is dying. Not to mention do we have this crisis in tension here in this chapter, but we also have a tension of status. We have a man who is a, a synagogue leader. He's the ruler of the synagogue. He's, he's a higher up. He's a well-respected man. He's a man in good standing with the community, a man in good status, and his daughter is sick. And then we have a lowly woman who is unclean. Now, what do I mean by unclean? Well, within the Levitical law, there is laws about how to handle a, a, a woman's menstrual cycle. Not, not for a person, but how the woman should handle it. When she enters into a menstrual cycle, she's considered unclean for that period of time. And generally, it's seven days. And she's supposed to do special washings and so on. She can't go to synagogue. She's got to remain um, separate from everybody else. Anybody who comes in contact with her, touches her, or whatever the case is, because of the blood flow, is, is told to, that they're now unclean, and they have to go wash ceremonially, get cleaned up, and then they're still considered unclean until evening. That's in the Levitical law. Now, why did God do that? Well, I'm assuming it's a part of the Levitical law for that is just cleanliness. When you have a million people wandering about in a desert, uh, diseases can spread very quickly because of unclean habits. But with that said, the Jews had these habits. So this woman for 12 years has been unclean and untouchable. Anyone who comes in contact with her knows, oh, I'm going to be unclean all day. If I, if I do something with her, if I touch her, if I interact with her, I'm going to have to go through washings, and then I'll be unclean until night. If um, I, she cannot go to the synagogue, she can't participate in community events, she is now unclean. She's an outcast. So we have a well-accepted, well-respected member of society and an outcast. These two people in tension within this story. Here's one thing I'll tell you about the story that we can take right from the very beginning. And this is that is this. We will all come face to face with crisis. There is not one of us on this planet that will ever escape life without some sort of crisis. We can just take that. We can just know it and understand it and just realize that life will not always be easy. Life will be full of crises. It's just going to happen. Now, the measure of the crisis, we don't know. 
You know, some people, the measure of the crisis is kids with asthma, being up all night, that sort of thing. Maybe the measure of a crisis is being diagnosed with cancer early on and figuring out how to deal with it with your family, or even, even death, or maybe a suicide in the family. Whatever the crisis is, crisis always means pain. We know that. We know that really well. Crisis always means hardship. And you know what? When we hear or think about the thought of crisis, we always want to wince away from it. Uh, don't want that. Don't want to be a part of it. My dad told me that I wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. Wait a minute, that's not a compliment. Huh, no. Uh, he was joking me with me yesterday because uh, he was talking about me using the drill. Because when I was a little kid, my dad would have me using this big drill called the whole hog. And the thing was huge. And he'd say, now watch out because if it catches, it's going to spin and hit you in the head. Okay, he's got like an eight-year-old using this giant drill that I can barely hold, right? And... Uh, now, today, this is called child abuse. I just want you guys to know that. So anyway, I'm starting to drill, and then the thing catches, flips up, bam, clocks me in the head, and I'm trying to not pass out. And he's all, and not only, you just would never learn this lesson. It kept happening. I'm like, well, Dad, don't you think maybe I could have used some help? <laughs> but then he said that, you know, the other thing about you that wasn't very good is you didn't never learn to not touch the soldering iron. It took you two times to burn yourself on the soldering iron to learn not to touch it. Well, I might not be as good at wincing away from pain because <laughs> I don't understand it. I don't know. But generally speaking with crises, we all are afraid of them in some way. I, I'll never forget talking to some friends, and they were afraid to pray a prayer of surrender to God. They, they, they told me that, I, you know, like Jerry shared about his prayer of surrender. All right, Lord, whatever it costs, whatever you want from me, I'll do it. And, and um, my friends were saying, yeah, I'm not sure. if I, you got to be really careful praying those prayers. Don't want to pray that prayer because you know what's going to happen. God's going to bring some trials into your life. God's going to cause some crisis in your life. And I'm just not ready for that. How foolish. God's going to do what God's going to do. And God's going to bring glory to himself, and he'll use you to bring glory to himself. And guess what? When God brings glory to himself, we benefit. We benefit. Yeah, we may have pain. We may have some suffering. But it will always end in our good, the Bible tells us in Romans 8, 28, 29. But we will come to face, uh, face-to-face with crisis. It's something we can't avoid. And the Bible's got a lot to say about how to deal with it. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of various kinds. And here's the reason why. Because the testing of your faith, the trials confronting your faith, produces in you a greater faith. It produces in you perseverance. You're like, well, but I really don't want the trial. (laughs) Listen, we all don't want trial. I get it. No one wants to be Job. Job didn't want to be Job. Job sat around the fire with his friends Scraping his boils off going, woe is me, why was I ever born? He didn't want to be Job at that time. No one wants to go through the fire. But the fact is, is God will use the fires and the trials in our life to develop us, to show himself, his glory through us to others. He's going to do amazing things through us. And you know what? Here's the thing. In the end, when we get to heaven... When we go to be before the Lord, we're going to experience something. And, and, and theologians, we, theologians call it the beatific vision or the beauty of God. That when we go before God, when we see God in all of his splendor and all of his beauty, something amazing is going to happen to us. The memories of the pain pass away. And I don't even think it's that we get amnesia or forget, but I think what it is is we say, this was all worth it. Much like when a woman bears a child, she goes through a whole lot of pain. My wife was explaining to me how painful it was uh, giving birth the other night, and I said, well, I'm sure it wasn't that painful, honey. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I was just teasing her. And uh, by the way, guys, I don't ever encourage you to say things like this to your wife. Um, It doesn't go well. It ends up with you on the couch, even if you're joking. Anyway, my back is really sore. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But um, anyway, something about when you see that child, pain passes away. The beauty of the pain is shown through. And you go, wow, 
it was all worth it because I now see God in all of his glory. So we see that this woman here, or first Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, the man in good standing comes to Jesus, and he's urgent. Now, I, I got to tell you, just like me driving down the freeway, there was nothing. I was going to do everything I could to save my daughter's life when she couldn't breathe. I was going to do everything I could uh, because she's that important to me. And I can totally see that Jairus here goes, man, Jesus is back on the shores. I hear the crowds. Now, Capernaum, and we, we think this was in Capernaum. Where, where this incident happens. It, it seems like it was there because that's where one of the larger synagogues was. But Capernaum was a, is a small town. In fact, if you look it up now, and Jerry was just there, it's a very small town. The excavation area is very small. It wasn't, it wasn't a huge city. It wasn't like you were going to get lost in Capernaum. So there was no question that Jairus would have known Jesus is back. And knowing that Jesus is back, he knew that there was one person, one person that he could go to and seek help for his daughter. And so he went. He went falling down before Jesus. He fell at his feet and said, please, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and alive. He's exercising his faith here, knowing this. But as Jesus prepares to go, we see that he's interrupted by this woman of low status. This woman who is unclean. I mean, really, is she really worthy to interrupt this emergency mission? We can ask ourselves that, but I'll tell you right now, there are no accidents in God's kingdoms. And I'll, t- and I'll tell you this too. Value is not placed on, on worth in society. Value is not placed on money. Value is not even placed in God's kingdom on how good you are, but how much faith you, you give, how much faith and trust you put in Jesus. That's where the value is in God's kingdom. And that's the amazing part about it is we don't compare our faith. We just say, all right, Jesus, I'm believing in you. That's what faith is. I'm going to trust in you now, God. I'm going to follow you now, God. And this is what, what happens. And both are of great value to Christ. And we're going to see how he responds to this woman. So the crowd is thronging about him. And that word throng, we looked at that word back in when we did the parable of the sower. The, it talked about the weeds choking out. Uh, so it's basically the the crowds are pressing in and thronging around Jesus and this woman just knows if I can merely touch his garment I'll be healed what was special about Jesus clothes well there was nothing special about his clothes there was nothing different about the clothes of Jesus than was was about any other clothes they were made the same way they weren't magical in any way what it was was it was a point of release for her faith she knew if she merely could touch Jesus, he could do it. That's a lot of times what it takes when we, we need some touch point or some release of faith. And we have some of those things. Even right now that we do every Sunday, we have communion. It's a release of faith. We recognize that, Lord, this represents your body and blood. It's representative of that. It's representative of my salvation, my debt paid on the cross by you. It's a release of faith. The offering plate, as it, as it goes around, of course, we don't do an offering plate Sunday nights, but the boxes, it's a touch point of faith. Lord, I'm giving to you first my first fruits, trusting in you to take care of me and provide. It's a release of faith. And then, of course, we see this in Scripture, other places where Paul had a handkerchief that he was, had tied around his head that got full of his sweat while he was working in Ephesus, and the crowds got a hold of it on one of his lunch breaks while he was teaching in the synagogue, passing it around, healing people with this, with this handkerchief. It was nothing about Paul. It was about the trust in God, the faith in God that God can do this. God can take care of this situation. And so this woman gets in there, and she touches his garment, and she knows that Jesus has the power to heal me in my situation. Notice, though, for a minute, 12 years, 12 years she suffers with this discharge. I, I, I can't even imagine what it's like to suffer for 12 years. I don't know. But I know that there are people that do know what it's like. But me personally, I can't imagine it. That, that This ongoing suffering, this ongoing shunning of society, being an outcast, never being able to come. To, can you imagine 12 years being banned from church? I mean... And this isn't something, it's not like she's a bad person. 
She's got a physical ailment that's keeping her away, making her unclean. And it says this, is the text tells us that and she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Now, when we think of doctors today, we think of, generally speaking, we don't think of people taking advantage. Like in our society, when we think of somebody taking advantage of someone, we think of lawyers. Sorry, Joe. Uh, we think of lawyers. We think of lawyers as the sharks, right? Lawyers are the ones who are going to take advantage and, and, and uh, exploit people and so on. Well, in Jesus' day, that was doctors. Doctors would charge a lot. Generally, only the rich could afford them. And they would tell you all sorts of things, and half the time their cures wouldn't work. Here, here's some cures from the Babylonian Talmud for this woman's uh, problem. Now, Talmud just means to learn in Hebrew. And so what the Talmuds were were uh, collections of uh, Pharisees' writings and uh, their explanations of the law and explanations of, of how to conduct, and so, conduct themselves and all. So here's one of the cures. Procure three Persian onions, boil them in wine, make her drink it, and say to her, cease your discharge. So, so there you go. Boil some onions and some wine and then command her to cease. I don't know about you, but and I joke with people about this, but I've never looked at a person who is sick and been like, just stop it. Stop it. Just stop it. Well, I can't. I'm sick. Just stop it. It, it doesn't even make sense. Here, here's another uh, cure. Uh, if she's not made well with that, have her sit at crossroads. Hold a cup of wine in her hand, and a man comes up from behind frightens her and exclaims, cease your discharge. <laughs> Isn't that a cure for the hiccups? <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> okay, have her sit just at these crossroads, making her feel like, okay, I'm out here all alone. And then have somebody run up behind her and scare her and then say, stop it. And you know what? If that doesn't work, get a handful of cumin, a handful of saffron, and a handful of fenugreek and bring them to a boil Make her drink it and say to her, stop it. <laughs> Cease. <laughs> and if that doesn't work, here's the next thing. Take 60 pieces of clay from a wine vessel and, let them, and then smear them on her and say to her, stop it. How foolish these things are. I know, and especially from us in our mindset, looking backwards, we go, yeah, that's not going to work. That's not going to help that person at all. But she had spent so much money, all the money she had. She had exhausted her resources and then said, Jesus can do it. And so she goes and she touches him. And immediately Jesus says, who touched my garments? And I love how the disciples clueless are like, what are you talking about? Everybody's touching you. But Jesus knew, no, something different happened here. And, and I, we can't really go into it that much because obviously the Lord, uh, God chose to heal her through G, her touching Jesus' garments. Jesus knew about it. We, we don't know that much about the situation and we want to be careful not to dive too deeply into it lest we uh, twist theologically, come up with some sort of heresy or something like that. But, but we do know that Jesus understood what happened, and he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what happened to her, she came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and said, okay, it was me. It was me. I love how she's like, oh, man, they're looking for me. Okay, I've got to go forward. And notice what he says to her, daughter, 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 your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Daughter. What are you doing still in my power? He didn't say that. Oh, you unclean woman. No, daughter. The fact is, is that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we become part of his family. We become sons and daughters of God. That, that's what happens to us. Daughter, go in peace. Be healed of your disease. Going on from there, while he's speaking with her, this time, this stopping of Jesus 
was enough time for one of Jairus' servants to come back down and say, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. Just forget about it. Man, can you imagine Jairus is like, I know who can help. I'll go get the teacher. I'll go get Jesus. He can get here. He can save my daughter. I can, I can get to him. And he, and he rushes to him, falls down. Please, come to my house. My daughter's dying. I need you. Jesus says, okay, I'm coming. And then this woman interrupts everything. And then this servant comes. It's too late. She's dead. Don't bother her. But Jesus has such a timely response overhearing this conversation with Jairus and his servant, he says, do not fear, only believe. You see, well-placed faith is key in our crises. Well-placed faith is the key to our crisis. Always. Well-placed faith is going to be your key. It's always going to be the key. It's not going to make you feel great. You're still going to be in pain. You're still going to have to deal with it. But the faith in God, trusting in God. Remember, we're not talking about blind faith. We're not talking about faith the way the world defines faith. We're talking about faith the way the Scriptures define faith. Which means depending upon God. All right, Lord, you said it. Now I'll do it. Lord, I don't know how this is going to work, but I'm going to trust you because you told it. It's a dependence and an obedience to God. That's what well-placed faith is. All right, Lord, I'll do what you say. And so... Jesus tells him, don't fear, only believe. What does it mean? Trust in me. Trust in me. Place your faith in me and don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And and I don't even think Jesus is saying, don't even question. I'm sure his daughter's dying or dead now. I'd be afraid. I I, I don't think that that, that's what, I think Jesus is consoling him, say, it's all right. I got this. And you know what? I think Jesus says the very same thing to us in our situations today. When we're in crisis, don't fear. Believe in me. It's Jesus' same statement to you. Because here's what happens when we fear. When we fear, we do things our own way. We go off making up our own uh, theories on how something should happen. We come up with our own remedies. Well, you know, uh, I don't like how this is working out, or I don't like this crisis I'm in, or I'm going to do this. You know what? Uh, There's crisis in my marriage. So here's this, you know, I just can't see this working out. We're going to break up permanently. Don't fear. Believe in me. That's what Jesus wants. Don't come to your own conclusions. Don't figure out your own ways. Trust in God during your crisis. Well, I can't see this working, so I'm going to go to a psychic or a medium. I can't see this working, so I'm going to, I'm going to figure out a way. I, you know, uh, my, my family life isn't, or my, um, my uh, marital life isn't as satisfying as I want, so now I'm going to go and, and look at things on the internet or do things I shouldn't be doing. Don't fear. Believe in God. That's what our, the same statement is to us today. Don't fear, believe in God. And this is what Jesus says to this man Jairus. Well-placed faith is a key in our crisis. Look at 1 Peter 5, 7. 1 Peter, or, uh, 1 Peter 5, 7. I have to turn there. It says something very interesting. Remember, Peter is writing to, to the church And he's telling them that they're going to go through endure persecution. And this is what he says. Uh, Actually, we'll back up to verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So the first step is humble yourselves at the mighty hand of God. Oh, good job, honey. Uh, I I didn't put it in the PowerPoint. Humble yourselves, uh, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may lift you up. Now, verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Casting all your, humble yourselves before the Lord. Don't look to yourself for answers. Don't look to your friend. Don't Don't look around for answers. Humble yourselves before God. And cast your anxieties to Him. Let Him be your first response, not your last response. Cast your anxieties on Him. Now, if, if you skip down there, 
verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we are to cast our anxieties upon him for he cares for us. That's, that's, that's what we want to do in crises. Not, not figure them out for ourselves. Not figure out, oh, how I, need, I, how I need to do it. No, Lord, how would you have me respond during this time? How am I going to deal with this? And again, when James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever we face trials, he's not saying going around laughing, being happy, acting like nothing's happening. I get it. You know, when, um, when I had my surgery for my Achilles tendon, uh, it, was a, it was really painful. Well, in fact, actually, I thought it wasn't that ba- big a deal at first, but I, that was the, all the, the drugs and the numbing and everything. I was like, I'm good. <laughs> in fact, I remember telling my wife, I so miss, <laughs> I, I, I just completely underestimated the surgery. I told my wife, I was like, oh, don't worry about it. I'll just drive myself to the hospital, drive myself home, no big deal. <laughs> I was like, you don't have to go out of your way for me. She's like, no, I think I'm going to be there. But I remember uh, meeting with... Uh, one of my friends that Sunday afternoon for we were doing some discipleship and he came over to the house and uh, I it was the Sunday after I had my surgery I had my surgery on Saturday and I remember during that meeting just my the pain started coming and all the nerve blockers had worn off and it was like throbbing and I I just got in this intense pain I was like oh my goodness and you know what I didn't feel like going in a bounce house at that point in time I didn't feel like having fun. I was in a lot of pain. A lot of pain. But it didn't rob me of joy as far as my faith in Christ. It didn't rob me of God having a plan. But I was in a lot of pain. And, and I knew I was in a pain. And I wasn't going around laughing. I wasn't acting, putting on a face, acting like it was no pain. No, I was like, I'm in pain. I called up the doctors at the hospital. And I was like, okay, here's the deal. I took one of your painkillers. Not working, not even close. What's your pain level? And I've never ever, like, usually when people ask me what your pain level is, I'm like, I don't know, five, between one and ten, five. (laughs) That's like always my answer. I'm like, ten, it's ten. I'm sure my leg is falling off, I guarantee it, you know. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, so I took more painkillers, but when we go through trials, when we go into a crisis, God isn't expecting us to act like it's not happening. God isn't expecting us not to, to, to deal with our pain, not to have grief. He's not expecting us to, to mourn. He's not expecting us to not do those things. He's expecting us to believe in Him, to not fear, believe in Him and trust in Him. And so that's what the Jairus does. Jairus it has his well-placed faith in Jesus. So look at what happens. Let's go to verse 38. Um. Verse 38 says this, or verse, oh, let's start back at verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Okay, big mistake, don't laugh at Jesus. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother, those who were with him, and went in where their child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and and told them to give her something to eat. Amazing. Jesus comes to the house. Now, in Jewish, in the Jewish culture, when someone passed away, funeral starts right then. They're, they're, you know, today, we, uh, someone passes away, you start dealing with it, you set it up, when's the funeral? Uh, and a really fast funeral is within a week. Uh, sometimes funerals, though, can be like the following month. And it, it takes time. You've got to go to the funeral home. You've got to figure out the whole burial process and all these sorts of things. If they were a serviceman, you've got to talk to the the cemetery there and make sure that the government knows and it's a process but for for in jesus's day started right away 
And they would have people that would come and, and mourn and well. They, they, were, they were professional mourners and wellers, and they would just go around, okay, we're going to mourn. And I saw, uh, the closest thing I ever saw to this was in Taiwan. We were there on a mission trip, and I remember uh, someone had passed away, and they were driving this van through the street, just, ah! and, and uh, speaking Chinese. I'm not sure what they're speaking, but they were welling, and I asked Pastor Rob, I'm like, what's happening? He's like, oh, it's a funeral. I'm like, Whoa. They're letting everybody know there's a funeral happening. And it was the same thing. They, they, they wanted everybody to know, so they're mourning. And Jesus said, why are you making a commotion and weeping? And, and, and you know, sometimes there was genuine weeping, but within their culture, everybody was supposed to be weeping. So whether you were genuinely weeping, it's, oh, you know, everybody's supposed to be weeping. And, and here, I, I, I don't know this for sure because I've never been to Israel, but maybe Jerry can tell us later. Every time I see uh, Jews in, in, on, on TV or uh, in news briefs or whatever, it always looks like they're, they're very emotional, wailing. <laughs> you know, of course, the wailing wall, it's, they're, they're, they're very, very emotional. And, and I'm not sure if that's actually the case in Israel, but, um, but at least I know the wailing wall, they do this. Um, but I'll have to ask Jerry about that later. But uh, anyway, so they're, they're weeping and welling, and Jesus says, the child is not dead but sleeping. Now, it's not that they had misdiagnosed the child. It's not that he was trying to tell them, you guys are dumb. It's not that. But Jesus knew what was going to happen. So he let them know, hey, she's sleeping. Interesting how within the New Testament, whenever it refers to a Christian's death, it says they, went, they were asleep. They slept. Or... They, those who have fallen asleep. Because we know, <coughs> sorry, we know that when our faith is in Christ, we will rise. We will be risen up. We will have that new body. And of course, we also know that we go to be before the Lord. So they laughed at him. And then Jesus tells her, takes her by the hand. He, he makes sure it's just the father and the mother and the, the disciples that were with him. Takes her by the hand and says, basically, little girl, I say to you, arise. And it, of course, Mark gives us the Aramaic, and I think this is why he does it. I think he wants to make sure that he, everybody knows he didn't speak some special magical words. He just commanded this girl to arise. And here's, here's something we can take away. Jesus always can co- confronts our crisis with the power of God. See, when we place our faith in Jesus, he confronts our crisis with the power of God. That's what Jesus does. And he did it with this woman, and he does it with this little girl. He confronts the crisis with the power of God. Does it mean that everyone always is healed? No, it doesn't mean that. Sometimes we suffer in this life. Paul suffered. And Paul said, three times I prayed, and the Lord has told me, no. No, I'm not going to heal you. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. But I will tell you this. Jesus always will confront our crisis with the power of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that we're victors. We don't have to be, we're not in bondage to this thing. We know that we deal with it because this is life, but we're not in bondage. Sometimes we experience healing. Sometimes that healing takes time. Sometimes God is revealing something to us, and once we finally get it, we find ourselves healed. Sometimes it's, it's for other people to see the glory of God in you. We, we, don't, we don't really know. We do know this. We live in a fallen world, and this fallen world has diseases, and it has pain. It has natural disasters. It has physical disasters. It's got evil people. It's got a lot of pain. But we do know that the power of God is greater than this pain, than these diseases. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Christ is always greater, and we can trust in Him. So I want to encourage you tonight in closing, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ if you haven't done so yet, knowing that your faith placed in Him will not come up short. But, but what you'll find is that you'll have power to deal with pain and crises in your life. You'll have power to, to, to know that God isn't just going to do this for no reason at all. You know, I, I actually feel bad more so for those without any faith, for the atheist. I have an explanation for pain. I know why we have pain and why we have evil. I know that we live in a fallen world, that there's sin in this world. 
But I also know that I have a greater God who will use it for my good and His glory. Whereas the, those who have no hope, those who don't believe in God, they can't tell you why. All they can say is how angry they are or how much hurt they're in or, or that this is all senseless and it was just bad luck. That's a sad way to live and a sad view. But we can put our trust in Jesus. And I want to encourage you to, when you're with your friends or you know your friends are hurting, say, hey, we can pray to a God who has the power to overcome. We can pray to a God who has the power to overcome. And you lead your friends. Don't be, don't be quiet about those things. Be bold with your faith. And, of course, obviously always be sensitive, too. You don't want to go to someone's funeral and say, stop it, right? You want to be sensitive. But know that we, we have a God who can overcome. Let's close, close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for tonight. And God, we thank you that you are our God. Lord, that we trust in you, Lord. That we won't act out in our own means or our, by our own ways. But God, we're going to look to you. We're going to trust in you and place our faith in you. We thank you, Lord. Bless the rest of our worship now. And Lord, if anyone in the, is in this room who hasn't yet committed their life to you, Lord, I pray that they would, they would cry out to you tonight, Lord, forgive me of my sin. We thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.